Good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we celebrate the Lord together. And a little warmer today than and yesterday than it was middle of the week. So uh, see those little cold snaps help us appreciate the warmer weather, unless you're one of those crazy people that uh, that likes it colder. But uh, we're we're excited about what God is doing. We got a, a group of. Uh, young people and leaders up at Mizpah and uh, for the ski retreat weekend and and God was good if I don't know if you watched the weather but uh, they only got like 53 inches of snow up there over the last four days uh, but God was good we were able to some people worked very hard to to get people to be able to get to the cabins and up the road and so they're up there enjoying this weekend. We desire to work in our neighborhood and represent Jesus Christ well. And one of the ways we do that is by uh, reaching out to our local elementary school, our neighborhood school, Bryant School. And if you've been part of Hannaford for any amount of time, you know that a few times each year we, we work on ways that we can be an encouragement to the school, to the students and the staff. And we, we do different things. And we recently, uh, we, we always ask them, what are some things that we can do? And uh, recently they had mentioned... Uh, that they have teacher parent-teacher conferences, and so those teachers are there uh, on those days from before school starts in the morning, and then right after school, they, they stay there and have conferences into the evening. And so we have taken it on to provide some meals for those teachers, and we uh, have Tuesday... We need some more people to help with Tuesday. Thank you for the people that have helped. Uh, but out in the foyer, there is a sign-up. Now, oftentimes we talk about how you need to share with others. I don't want you to share with Second Service. I want you to go out there, sign up, fill up all the slots so Second Service can't have the blessing of helping. So if you would do that, we would appreciate that. There's still a few spots left, and don't say, ah, oh, there's just a few spots left. I know other people want to do it. Step up and do that. You bring the food here by 3 o'clock on Tuesday, and we have some people that are already set up to take it over to the school and have it for them uh, for that evening of the parent-teacher conferences. So please step up and do that. And as we share Jesus Christ, his love to our neighborhood. And how many of you have seen the movie The Jesus Revolution? All right, quite a few of you have. It ends in the theater here in Helena on Wednesday. If you have not seen it, you need to go and see it. It is a powerful story of what happened in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and the Jesus Revolution, a couple people that you may have heard their names, Chuck Smith, Greg Laurie, and how God amazingly impacted a generation of people. And so I encourage you to, uh, to support that film and uh, go watch it at uh, Cinemark here in the next, well, counting today, four days. You can go and watch that. It will be an encouragement to you. 
Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, as we come before you this morning, may we recognize that as Almighty God, you care about us. And we have an opportunity to communicate with you. Lord, your communication line is always open. As we examine this prayer that Paul shared for those people in Colossae, may we recognize the importance of and how to pray for our friends. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a picture up here, and it's something of a place that uh, you may be familiar with if you've been watching the news, uh, Asbury College and Seminary. Have you, anybody been watching the news, what's been happening there? Pretty amazing over the last two-plus weeks. They've had what they call a revival. We like to throw that term around. We pray for revival, and we should. We talk about revival. And if you've been following what's taken place at Asbury College, you, you recognize there's a couple things that are necessary for revival. And as you hear the stories of the people whose lives have been changed, you see these aspects of revival that continually are mentioned. Prayer and worship. They're foundations to change. As you hear the stories of people, and I, and just a couple days ago, I read a, another story of a, a young lady, and she was actually a senior there at Asbury College, and and she had so she'd been going. It's a Christian college, but but throughout those first years. She had had some difficult things in her life, and so she was really questioning God's love. And, and so as, as she would be going to chapel, the, the college requires that you go to chapel every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so she'd been doing this for over three years, but, but yet as she would go, she was questioning God's love, questioning whether God cared about her. She was Pretty forthright in what she said, as, as these people would pray and as they would worship during their chapel services, she would just not take part and just sit or stand. But then as she went a couple weeks ago and God was working there, her heart broke, she repented and she saw God's amazing work in her life. So we talk about revival. We talk about how do we pray that God changes our lives and the lives of the people around us. And in Colossians chapter 1, we see an amazing picture, a framework of how we should pray for our friends. Paul lays it out as he is praying for these people in Colossae. And if you remember, many of them he had never met. He didn't start the church, but his heart was still united with them as he was hearing from Epaphras the, the things that were going on, the struggles that they were having, but also the victories 
that God was giving. And so we see here in verses 9 through 14 this prayer, Colossians chapter 1, this prayer that Paul shares with the people of Colossae. Says this beginning in verse 9 For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you read Paul's New Testament letters, you see many of these prayers recorded as he is praying for, for individuals or for churches. And there's a couple of constants that are, that are found in Paul's prayers, the ones that are recorded. One is that his prayer focused on others. His, his prayer focused on, on the people, not just himself. And also, it focused more on the spiritual aspects of life than the physical aspects of life. Now, in saying that, it, it doesn't mean that we don't pray for our own needs. Jesus gave us an example of that. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Actually, Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray and part of that is, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses or our sins. And, and so praying for our own lives. But oftentimes our, our prayer becomes self-focused. And it needs to be more others-focused. And in saying that, that Paul prayed spirit or focusing on the spiritual aspects of their lives doesn't mean that we don't pray for our physical needs. Again, as we mentioned, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Paul himself shares in 2 Corinthians 12 that he prayed for God to take away a physical ailment that he had. James 5 tells us to pray for the sick tells us to call on others to pray for us physically as well as spiritually. So I don't want you to hear me wrong. We are to, we are to pray for our own needs, and physically as well as spiritually, but, but oftentimes it is so easy to focus on the physical and to focus on ourselves. But Paul challenges us here on how to pray for our friends. And there are several things that he brings to the forefront. First of all, in verse 9, we see that, that he's praying that they have a knowledge of God's will. Look at verse 9 again. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul begins with these three words, for this reason. Oftentimes he used one word, therefore, and either of those terms, therefore or for this reason, draws us back to the previous part of his letter. Why? What was the reason that he does not cease to pray for them? Well, 
they knew Christ. We saw that in verses 6 through 8. Their relationship with Christ, actually all the way back to verse 3. And so, he didn't need to pray for their salvation, but he also knew that they were facing some very difficult things, and he needed to pray for their steadfastness and their growth and their understanding and their knowledge. See, they were facing many false teachers, and we touched on it beginning last week, and throughout this letter, Paul challenges them as they stand against the false teaching of these, these uh, people that were involved in the mysticism and, and those who were, we use the term Gnostics, they sought this deep, deeper knowledge that was really a synchronism, a God plus, and all of this mysticism. And so you'll see throughout the letter, he emphasizes the knowledge of God, and here, the knowledge of God's will, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. They had so much more to learn, and the battle was fierce each and every day. So God prayed that they would grow in the knowledge of God's will. God's will is to be the focus of our life. It's to be our lifelong pursuit. Jesus reminds us of that in his own life. In John 4, 34, it says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Luke twenty two forty two, as Jesus was in the garden facing the trials and what he knew would be his crucifixion. He says this, saying, Jesus speaking, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The focus on God's will. But there's often confusion when we talk about God's will. People ask questions. One of the most common questions people ask was, well, how do I know the will of God? Well, in the next 90 seconds, hopefully I'll give you a, a little bit toward that, but it is a difficult question, isn't it? Well, let, let's step back and just take a, a, a short amount of time and look at the basics of God's will. We can break it into two aspects. We see what we would call the general will of God concerning how we live our lives in obedience to God. The general will of God is found in God's Word, our guidebook on how we should live. The commands that God gives us, both to do and not to do. An example of His general will would be this, how do I love my, or I need to love my neighbor, that command. But then there's also, and this may be a little more difficult to grasp, is that God's specific will concerning decisions in my life. Maybe I'm considering a career change or asking her to marry me or whatever it would be, those decisions that are going to be life-altering decisions that I can't turn to a passage in Scripture and it says, Thou shalt not marry her, or thou shalt. Oh. What do we do in those cases? We pray. 
We look at, yes, is this decision going to affect my walk with God or the walk of God, with God of others? But many of those questions are very difficult. We can seek godly counsel. People around us that we know are serious Christ followers who will encourage us, share with us, pray with us. I think there's a couple things that are very dangerous in seeking God's will. Oftentimes we may try to seek it in a mystical way. Beware when we think or we hear, I, I, it's just a feeling I have. That's dangerous. Or the danger of, I do it basically or solely on my circumstances. Now, God may use circumstances to move us in a certain direction, absolutely. But we get consumed with our circumstances and we oftentimes don't step out because our circumstances help us realize that stepping out may be dangerous. How many times have we heard or given the advice, just follow your heart? Ever hear that or maybe even say that? This advice can be very dangerous. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us something about that. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But oftentimes we, we see God's will as sort of like a Hallmark movie. You watch Hallmark movies? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but uh, about two minutes into the movie, you know who's going to marry who, and the person that has all the right things that's going to be pushed off to the side, the current boyfriend, as, as the guy that has no job, but he's the one that is, she's just following her heart. And oftentimes we do that with the will of God. It just makes me feel good. Well, God gave us emotions. But Paul emphasizes the most important thing in following God's will, and that's knowledge. In fact, you see there in verse, in verse 9, he uses the term knowledge. And again, he uses it a little later on, a couple verses later. But then he also, in verse 9, uses the word wisdom and the, and the words spiritual understanding. The knowledge of God, and that is found in seeking God and studying God's word. It's not some mystical gut feeling that God gives us. God's word leads us to God's will. He uses the term filled with knowledge. And that means to be controlled by the knowledge. In another passage, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't allow alcohol to control your actions as a drunkard will. Rather, allow God's Spirit to control your actions. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by Him. And Paul says, be filled with knowledge as you seek God, grow in that knowledge, and that's going to control how you live your life. 
And it will help you in both following God's general will and specific will in, in specific decisions. But this knowledge is not just to inform, but to transform. You see, these Gnostics, these false teachers, it was all about just philosophy and, and debating the deeper questions of life. Be careful about that, because usually if you spend all your time focused on that, you're going to go off the deep end. Paul says, no, seek the knowledge of God, the truth of him found in his word, and then you will follow him. So God, or Paul prayed for the knowledge of God's will, but also that they would have God-honoring lives. Verse 10 says this, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Our conduct is to honor God, and as we do that, we will produce fruit. Our life will be changed from the inside out. And not only that, but as we live the life that reflects Jesus Christ, it will impact the lives of others. The Gnostics taught that this knowledge that they sought and living were not connected. In fact, they believed that all matter was evil. So anything physical was evil, and you just sort of seek this mystical knowledge that you can just dwell in. But Paul says, no. Knowledge of God will change how we live. When I grow in knowledge, I will live differently. And Paul here shares three results of knowledge here in verse 10. Knowledge results in these three things. One, the way I live will please God. Number two, my life will produce healthy fruit. And number three, I will continue to grow in my knowledge. When I live to please God, God will be pleased with how I live. We're to seek to know God's will. We're to walk with him and allow him to work in us. But it doesn't stop there as he continues in the prayer in verse 11, prayer for moral excellence. Verse 11 says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. This power comes from God. You notice it's not that you will grow in strength, but that you are strengthened. The action is placed upon you as you allow God's power to work in your life. And this power that God gives results in patience and long-suffering. Patience means to uh, the endurance when circumstances are difficult. And long-suffering self-restraint. So we have patience and long-suffering, and then he adds another part with joy. As you think of patience and long-suffering, it doesn't bring up happy thoughts. We don't say, oh, I can't wait to learn more patience today. Or, whoa, what a wonderful thing to be long-suffering with that person. (laughs) But God says we do it with joy. Now, part of it's because of verse 12 and following. But we see that joy isn't based upon our circumstances, but on our hope in Christ. So, no matter my circumstances, I must have joy. And Paul knew that these Colossian believers were going to face some incredible persecution from without. 
because Christians were being persecuted all over the region. But also then the, the work of those within who were trying to draw them away from Christ. They were going to face an amazing amount of struggle and persecution. But in that they could have patience and long-suffering with joy. All three parts of these three verses are necessary. The knowledge of God's will in verse 9. Christian service. In other words, the fruit and lives living, walking worthy of Christ. Our character and conduct represent him well. And the personal character, the moral excellence of verse 11. But then he concludes in verses 12 through 14 by reminding them they needed to have that thankful attitude. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of his saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Paul prayed that they would have a life lived with gratitude. And that gratitude, as we mentioned earlier, and that joy that comes with that gratitude, that thankfulness, is because of the hope that we have in Christ, the inheritance that we're promised. And he uses the term there in verse 12, qualified. It means that we are empowered to have that. And that's only possible through the work of Christ. And he shares four terms to help us recognize what God has done for us. He begins in verse 13 that he has delivered us. Delivered means to be rescued from danger. Through Christ we're delivered from the power of Satan and the punishment of sin. And then he goes on and says, not only are we delivered, but that we are conveyed. If you think of a conveyor belt, we're moved from one place to another. We're delivered, but we're conveyed. We're moved into God's kingdom. And then third, we're redeemed. In verse 14, the release of a prisoner by the payment of a ransom. We're released from the consequences of sin, and we are forgiven. We're having our debt canceled. Our sin is forgiven. The debt is no more. Paul's prayer helps us to understand how we're to pray. We're to pray for transformed lives. We're to pray not only for ourselves but for others that we would seek out and follow God's will. You can see Paul's heart and passion for these people as they fight the adversities of life and the attacks of Satan. And we have the same calling to pray for our lives, but also for the lives of others around us, that we would seek God's will and know God's will, that we would live lives that produce fruit. That this knowledge would not just inform, but transform. And that we would live a moral character that honors God. And that we would do it all with a thankful heart. But if you're like me, 
it's so easy for our prayer lives to be, Lord, I need this and that, and these people need this and that, and, and Lord, make things easier. Make the pathway smooth. Make the results positive. But sometimes it's not going to be like that. And our prayers need to include that, that we pray for our needs and the needs of others, but also much more. In Acts chapter 4, the people of Jerusalem shared a similar request as some of what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1. And they were praying for their lives as a group of believers that were facing intense persecution. But it's interesting that they didn't pray for their happiness, they prayed for their holiness. And let me give you just briefly a small background of what's taking place. You read in Acts chapter 4 that that, uh, Peter and John had been thrown in prison. The Christians there were being threatened, persecuted. And so Peter and John are thrown in prison and, and and the people gather together and pray for the release and God miraculously allows them to be released. And so now they're gathering together, but the authorities have been threatening them. You are going to be, we're going to let you go, but it's not going to be good if you keep talking about this Jesus. So what do they pray? Look at what it says in in verses 27 through 31 of Acts chapter 4. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both they're praying and asking and, and talking with God here, whom you, God, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose bef- determined before to be done. We're going to stop there for just a second. You notice? People like... Pontius Pilate, Herod, the leaders that had been and others that were currently threatening them. But they recognized that God was in control. It says, you determined before that these things would be done. They recognized God's control. We can't pray these type of prayers without recognizing God is in control. Okay, let's go on in verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And then it goes on in verses 31, or verse 31, and says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Notice what's happening here and what's not happening here. First of all, what's not happening? You don't see in this prayer them praying, Lord, protect us. Help them to be nice to us. Now, is it wrong to pray that? No. Jesus says, cast all your cares on me, Jesus speaking. Our fears, our concerns those scary things in our life we're to give to God. But what was the focus of their prayer here? 
Help us to respond to their threats by being even more bold to proclaim your word. Boldness. By the way, you read the next chapters in Acts, it doesn't get any easier for them. But they turn their world upside down for Jesus Christ. Paul was praying for these people in Colossae. Lord, give them a knowledge of your will. Lord, help them to live lives that glorify you and that this fruit will be evident as they live those godly lives. Help them to have that moral excellence. And Lord, help them to do it all with a thankful heart. How do we pray for our friends? Same way. And how do we pray that God works in our life? By asking those same things. And God will work in us. And because of that, God works through us as we seek to know his will and to serve him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that as almighty God, you care about us. Help us to pray for the boldness to stand for you. Help us to pray in our lives and the lives of each other that we would live lives that glorify you. That we would seek and follow your will and that you would be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.